This morning, we're going to look at a passage which is probably one of the more controversial, and I know that you all have, I think about a year ago, looked at it. It's a passage from Timothy, and it talks about women in leadership. Um, But I want to look at it because today I want to um, begin to talk a little bit it's a little bit of inside baseball. I know, as you've heard probably me talk a little bit, but definitely Caleb last week um, got into really textual analysis. I, I want to I explain to you over the next couple of weeks what it is that those of us who are preparing sermons, that are studying the scriptures uh, in formal settings and, and really in depth to be able to teach, are actually doing what we're looking at. And, and that all comes down to how can we as followers of Christ become uh, intelligent readers, readers who read for understanding. Um, it's always good to read the text and let it work on you and, and get the general meaning and bathe yourself in the Word of God. But there's another way of study that is just very intentional in the way that it, it goes about trying to understand context so that we can understand what the Scriptures are saying to us, what God wants to say to us. So we're going to spend the next two or three weeks doing some of that. Um, and we're going to use this passage today to really get into the historical context and try to understand what actually Paul is trying to say. And, and what we're going to come to have to wrestle with is what exactly are these books that we call the Bible and especially the New Testament uh, as followers of Jesus. And when we, when we ask that question, we, we have all sorts of different books that make up our scriptures. We have, we have history, we have biography, we have, in the case of parables, short stories that didn't actually happen. They were you know, fables or stories that Jesus was telling to make a point. We have poetry, and we have all sorts of other types of literature and writing that have been put together and make up you know, this thing that we call the Bible. And it's important to understand what type of writing we're dealing with. And next week, we're going to delve into literature. But I will say that what's not really in there is certainly a play. Yet we've talked a little bit about how the New Testament especially is the, is the climax of this long story. And in some ways it acts as a play that invites us to participate. And the early church, uh, the early believers and followers of Jesus they were drawn into this story and they understood themselves as actors in that story and they were compelled as Jesus left to take up his mission and to live that story out and to carry that story on. Um, and I'm reminded when I was sometime in high school, when, when, I, grew, when I was little, my brother and friends, we used to sit around and watch the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't know if you know that, that, that story. So when, when we were in high school, they made movies of them. And because it was something that we enjoyed as a small kid, a, a bunch of us went. And after the movie, we, we walked out and we were beyond the stage, but we watched a bunch of little kids who had just seen the movie and, and they walk out. And if you've ever seen a kid who's just seen a movie they really like, what, what do you think these kids are doing? Right, you know, they're karate chopping everything because they're the Ninja Turtles, right? And the, the New Testament, if we read and understand it properly, acts that way, not that we're gonna, you know, walk out the street this morning and start you know, karate chopping everybody that walks by. But it, it is such a compelling story that we ought to love and live into that we feel ourselves become the characters that we read on the pages. We understand that we are to carry forward that story and that mission. And so it, it acts in, in the way um, that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I just, I just made an analogy with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in church. How great is that? Um, we have a problem though, and that problem is that the story is often misunderstood. And sometimes, unfortunately, it is intentionally misrepresented. 
um, for power reasons, authority reasons. And that's, that, that's a problem, and because it's, a, it's an ancient text. For us, it's now 2,000 years old. And so there's a lot of things that were going on in that world that we certainly don't know. Our world's completely different now. Um, there's a lot that's still the same, but a lot that certainly is different. And so the, the question is, what do we do with that problem? And the problem is, is this term that we've, you've probably heard um, tossed around, but it's exegesis. And it literally means to lead out. And it's the process of reading the text and drawing the meaning out of the text. The opposite is another fancy word called eisegesis, and that means to read in. And that is when we bring our own assumptions, our own ways of thinking, our beliefs, and then we go to the text and we try to throw that into the text, and we end up doing what's called proof texting, which is like the, the cardinal sin in the theological world, and that is having an opinion and then just going and find whatever little text and making it support your ideas. And so the way to avoid that and the way to get to a fuller understanding is this process of exegesis. And the formal process, and if you paid attention to Caleb's slides, you watched him do this as he taught us last week, uh, the, the two verses that he taught us. But the first is a historical and cultural analysis of what was going on in the time and place when the scripture was written, all right? Because the context matters. The second piece, and we've, we've hinted at it a little bit, is an analysis of the literature and the rhetoric. What, what type of writing is it? So is it, um, is it a poem, right? Po poetry has certain liberties that it can take that writing of history probably ought not, right? And so we get into Psalms, which are songs, and we get these metaphors and, and poetic language that we expect not to find in one of the other texts, like Samuel or Kings, which is a historical account of Israel, right? And so it matters what kind of literature it is. And then the final one is sort of theological, and in some ways we can think of how does this fit within the larger canon of, of the Bible, and particularly for our purposes for the next uh, while, the New Testament. And so how does what's being said not only exist historically, but then also as a piece of literature, but then how does that piece of writing fit in within the larger canon that we have that we've said is God-inspired scripture? So how does it fit with the other things that the other writers, uh, and when we think about Paul, how do, you know, one of the questions we're asked today is, how does this piece of writing fit, not only with everybody else, but just within Paul himself? Um, and, and we have to sort of wrestle at times with, with how those things can exist together. So we need to understand, and we kind of take from this, that if we use that sort of as our guide, which most people in sort of serious academic settings rely on, on this sort of form of exegesis, um, we say that the Bible is certainly, it's history, it's literature, and it's theology. And we have to hold all of those three together and, and sometimes a bit of tension um, and try to work out how those, all, things, all those things fit together. But all of those different pieces of background and information sort of surrounding a text help us decipher the meaning and understand it for us today. The, the interesting thing about our faith, which is not true necessarily of all other faiths, is we have a historical faith. What we claim is that we have a Jesus who lived, really, 2,000 years ago that died, was risen, and this, this happened in history. And so it's not a philosophy. You know, I was a philosopher. We Jim and Caleb and I were talking about that before this. Like, in college, I studied philosophy. And in philosophy, we literally just sit around in chairs, and we just talk about ideas and what might be out there and what do we think, right? Christianity is not a philosophy, right? Christianity is, we do a lot of thinking, but we, do, we base all that thinking in an actual flesh and blood historical reality of something that happened, right? So we're talking about something that actually happened, that we have access to. 
And it's not really even a religion, certainly not in the way that paganism was, for example, where they have sort of myths and theology and they build a religious system around ideas and stories that there's no historical basis for. So ours is historical in a way that many other religions are not. And so we can't get away from history and we ought not want to get away from history. Um, that's, a, that's a remarkable thing about the stories and the faith that we have. And so the question is then, how do, how do we know what that story is? And the answer is and somewhat simple, it's you read the text, right? We have, this, we have the storybook. Um, but some of the questions that arise around that is, is this text trustworthy? And if you've not wrestled with that in your own faith journey, uh, I, I would be surprised, but at some point we all kind of come up against the question is, can I actually trust what's in here? And we are going to spend some time in the future talking about how the, the text came together and why we have the big, we're gonna sort of bracket that conversation off for today. But one of, the, one of the questions that's bound up in there is, is this text objective fact? And one of the tough questions that we have to come to face with and the answers is no, but that's okay, right? I mean, think for a moment, as you open the New Testament, what do you find as, as the beginning of the New Testament? Sorry? There, there are four books that sit at the front of our New Testament the Gospels, and the Gospels are the what? The, what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're the story of Jesus, right? And we have how many of them? Four. And are they the same? No. Why do we have four? They're four different people writing a story, and they're writing to different people, and they have different purposes in writing. Right? And as we go through and we look at those texts, we're gonna talk about what, you know, what was Matthew trying to do? Who was his audience? And, and Matthew cares very much about drawing out the historical and, and the nature of, the, of what Jesus has done and rooting him in Old Testament history. Okay? And so he, he tells the story that way. And then Mark has a different purpose. Luke cares very much about the inclusion of sort of the under, underbelly of society, the women, the peasants, the, the lepers. So he tells lots of stories about Jesus coming to those types of people and including them. And then John is something altogether different. The first three we call the synoptics because they are the synopsis or the story. And John is a theological treatise, right? It's written, it certainly has story in it, but it's written for a different purpose. And so we can say at the same time that these are God-inspired. We don't have to leave that behind at all. But what we also realize is that each of these writers have chosen different stories and chosen to put them together in a certain way to make a certain point for us to learn. And as the church put these texts together and made a, gospel, uh, or a, a Bible, Holy Scripture, they have saw, seen fit to say all four of these, although different in purpose and style and way they tell the story, all four of these are true. And all four of these are important for us to know. And so what we understand is that those stories, the history, the objective reality of history is already in some way interpreted through the writers, the spirits leading as they put these texts together. They're already picking and choosing which stories they want to tell and how they want to tell them so that at the end we get to a theological point about Jesus and who he is that tells us something that's beyond the history itself. Does that make sense? All right, and, and we, we have to, in no way do we have to say, oh, well, you know, it's just Matthew, Mark, just telling them the stories, whatever they want to say, and it's not God's word. That, that's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is we just need to understand that they, there is an interpretation going on, and we can rightly say that it's God's interpretation for us, 
but they're all different, and they're all different for a reason. If you recall the end of John, he actually says, as he finishes his letter, he says, many other things happened, right, which would fill volumes if I told you all of them. So he even acknowledges that he has picked the different pieces and parts that he needs in order to tell the story that he wants to tell. Um, but then we have another sort of problem beyond that, is that and that is that, that we, as we come to the stories, also have an interpretive grid or filter. And this is where the eisegesis thing, the, the reading into the text becomes a danger because we all have preconceived notions and beliefs, things that we've been taught or told that we come to the scripture and that there's a danger that we just read the scripture and we read it in such a way that it just reinforces and becomes an echo chamber for the things that we've been taught and we don't really read and try to understand and allow it to tweak our understanding to mold us, to transform us into what Jesus wants us to be. And that's, that's obviously evident that we, all, we, we come to the scripture with different sort of preconceived notions and we get different interpretations as a result because we don't always agree about what a scripture says. That's, that's pretty obvious, right? We have lots of different types of churches and because they all, at the end of the day, they're disagreeing about scripture and we don't actually agree, disagree about what it says. I mean, the words are right there setting aside translation issues, we, we can agree upon what the, the text says. The, the question is, what does it mean? And then we, we come to different conclusions based upon our interpretive grid. And so what I, what I want to kind of lead into out of all that is that there is now this way of reading the text, which we would call critical realism. And I'm sure you all have heard that sort of like the postmodern world says, there is no objective truth, you can't know it. Critical realism is what's kind of coming in behind that, or has come in behind that, and it hasn't necessarily made its way into the popular culture yet. We still kind of sit in this world where everybody wants to just say, there's no objective truth, and my experience is my truth, and your experience is your truth. But critical realism says there is actually an objective truth. It recognizes that we all come with a certain perspective and bias, but the more of us that come with our different perspectives and the more that we interact with each other and the more that we uncover about the objective reality, the closer that we can get to that truth. So it still holds on to that. And I think that's a really helpful picture. I think it's, I mean, think about how you just go about your life, right? You go about having certain beliefs about anything, pick a topic, right? But you may hear a news story or you may see a, a science experiment or study that, I mean, just think about the way we think, I've thought about our virus. We had certain things that we didn't know at all, but certain assumptions about it. And as we've marched through the last few months, we've learned more. We've revised the way we think about it. We've revised the way we live as a result of it. That's what we're talking about. It's, it's somewhat like the scientific method, right? You, you take in data, you analyze that data. Is it good data? Is it bad data? If it's good data, we need to incorporate that into the new system. And that's what we're sort of talking about here. And so as we learn more, as we read more, as we, particularly today, we're talking about historical context, as we uncover more of the historical context, we have to allow that to tweak our understanding of the reading of scripture, okay? Scripture for today. First Timothy, I mentioned that I know that you all have studied this last year, but I wanna show you how history can help us make sense of something that is in some ways very difficult. So I want to read to that to you now. Okay, so this is Paul's letter to Timothy. Uh, he's giving him all sorts of instructions for the church that Timothy is serving. And we're going to talk about where that is in just a moment. But he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, 
not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. How many people just love that passage of scripture? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Not so much, right? Um, and and it's, it is problematic, right? It, I mean, first of all, like, I look out today, like most of you are women. You don't? I mean, I'm about to get stoned and thrown out of here for teaching this, right? I, I understand that, right? I don't like this. You know, like, I, I don't like this. Um, I don't like what it is implying. And certainly the way that it has been read uh, for a while now, I mean, I don't, you don't need me to tell you the way that women have been kept out of leadership roles, and maybe some of you have experienced that. I, I don't know, and to the extent that you have, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for that. Uh, hopefully today, we're gonna walk out of here having a real clear understanding of what was likely going on here. But it has certainly served to keep women sort of under the thumb, right? Be quiet, don't talk. And that's, that's unfortunate. Part of, the, part of the struggle that I've always had, and I think a lot of readers of the New Testament, and certainly even Paul, I, I have a pastor friend who's, who is a woman, and for a long time, she, she just hated Paul. Like, she had a real hard time for, for reasons akin to this, obviously, um, that, that she just had a real, real tough time with him. And some of it comes from things like this, because in Galatians 3.28, which is a letter, letter written to the Galatians who are struggling to, uh, over the issue of circumcision. If, you, if you're familiar with the letter, you remember that Paul is writing to the Galatians. There have been some, what they call Judaizers, the ones that had come and said to the Gentiles that in order to be a Christian, to be united with the Jewish family, because again, they're looking at the history of God's people, they had to be circumcised. So Paul is writing, he writes a scathing letter to them that this is, this is, y'all, this is ridiculous. And to the extent, he even says, the extent that you enforce this rule, you are either re-crucifying or undoing the, the, the gift of Christ because you are now putting yourself under the, the conditions of the law because circumcision served as a sign of the law, the Old Testament, right? And what Jesus has done is come to fulfill that and to move the ball forward. And so... In, in doing so, the, the letter really revolves around this verse. It says there is no longer Jew or Greek, right? So that's that Jew-Greek circumcision thing. But he also says there's no slave or free and there's no longer male or female. All of you are one in Jesus Christ, right? Now, does that mean that all of a sudden we're not gendered or all of a sudden there aren't Jews or Greeks? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course, those distinctions exist in reality. But what he's saying is that within the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter. We're all on the equal footing. So how do you put that up against what we just read that he wrote to Timothy. Right, there's some cognitive dissonance here in most of us as we read these passages. In Romans, at the end of the Romans letter, um, now these two things, I'm gonna just admit, these are somewhat controversial. This one, less so than the second one is, and I'm gonna talk to you about it. But he says, and this is the, the last chapter at the end, he's closing, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. What are de- who are deacons? church leaders, right? There's a text called, um, it's called the Testament of Our Lord. And it comes up a couple hundred years later, but the role of the deacon is defined as teaching the catechumens, the, the people who are going through catechesis, who are learning 
to be part of the church, teaching the catechumens and leading prayers, right? Clearly an official leadership role. And the fact that this is the first line in that closing indicates that Phoebe was the one that would have carried the letter to the Romans. And when she came into the Roman church like this, she was most likely the one that was to get up and read it. So, I mean, it, it, there's good reason to be suspect of what Paul's written in Timothy as a literal in, or instruction or a universal instruction, right? And then this is the one that's I, admittedly, I almost didn't include this because it's, it's controversial, but he goes on there and he says, uh, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who are in, in prison with me, they are prominent among the apostles. And there's some discussion about whether or not the, they were Again, not big A apostles, as in the original 12, but little A, were they actual apostles that were going out, or were they just popular? What I can say is there's enough controversy of it, around it, and there is enough reason to think that they may have been, that there have been attempts in the history of the church to change that to Junius, to make that a male name, right? So, again, I'm not going to throw that one out as evidence, necessarily, but it was, it was interesting and followed the Phoebe one. I think the Phoebe one's very strong. But then we have this from Luke, which I think is perhaps the most concrete example. And this is the story where Mary and Martha are uh, in, in the house and Jesus has come to visit. And Martha's running around and she's upset because she's getting dinner ready and getting everything ready to, to be a, nice, a good hostess because hospitality is important. Um, and it says, now as they, being Jesus and his followers, went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. And that, of course, upsets Martha. <clears throat> What's important here is Luke's description of Mary. What is Mary doing? <coughs> Learning. Where? To sit at the feet of Jesus is a description of a disciple. That is a technical term. Right? If you sit, you sit at the feet of your rabbi. And we talked weeks ago about what it meant to be a disciple. What Luke is telling us here very clearly is that Mary is a, rap, is a disciple of the rabbi Jesus. So Jesus has brought her in as one of those who will become like him, right? So he's setting her up and accepting her as one who will go on to carry the message to the world, all right? Um, so here we have Jesus himself and Luke telling us that Jesus accepted Mary as an equal with the other disciples. How do we reconcile this with the text that we're looking at? In Acts chapter 19, there's this story of Paul at Ephesus. And he's there with some traveling companions and he's been teaching the gospel. And there is a man named Demetrius who gets upset because Demetrius makes silver replicas. And we think that probably most likely what he was making is a replica of the shrine to Artemis that people with wealth would come and buy from him. They were silver, they were very nice. And they would take them home and they would be the thing that they do their sort of home worship with. They would be part of their shrine at their home. And so he makes, and, and in Acts, Demetrius says, you know, we make a good bit of money doing this, right? We make no small money. He's gathered his other artisans who do the same sort of thing. And he's upset for two reasons. One, because Paul's bad for business. Because if Paul's God is the true God and Artemis isn't, then he's got a problem, right? What is he gonna make and sell? Um, but in that time and place, there was a system of honor and shame. And even more important than business was the fact that he would be seen as a dishonorable man peddling, he'd be like a snake oil salesman, right? He's peddling a thing that doesn't really exist. 
So both of those things are problems for Demetrius. And so he gathers his artisans, fellow artisans, he explains to them that this is a problem, and they create a little sort of mob scene. And they start shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis being the local god, the local deity, the, the temple, whose temple he's making. And so they're trying to prop up Artemis. It goes on from there, and it becomes quite a, bit, a little bit of a, a riot. I, I want to show you first. Um, this is modern-day Ephesus, okay? And you can see the town that's cropped up up there by the red arrow. And so that's where the... This is a Google Earth image of what it looks like today. That red arrow is where the temple of Artemis sat, okay? And that yellow circle in the bottom is, is ancient Ephesus. That's where Paul would have been teaching and, and preaching. That's where the Agora is. Um, and where this sort of riot or mob started to kick up. And it became such a thing that they decided they needed to move it. It's, it's an old town. People are out and about. Once people start shouting, people, you know, you see what happens today when a fire truck or an ambulance or a you know, siren starts, stops, like everybody kind of comes out to see what's going on. And so people begin to gather and it becomes this, this larger thing. And they say, hey, we got to move to the theater. So this is the actual site of the, the modern day site of Artemis' temple. That's what it looked like. This thing's enormous. It is uh, 440 feet long by 220 feet wide. So it's a football and a third, half that wide, and then the columns themselves are 60 feet. It's twice the size of the Parthenon and was number two on the seven wonders of the world list. It's huge, it matters, right? Um, so they're upset about this and they start rioting and the yellow arrow that you see is where the theater was. And in, in Acts, we read that they took them to the theater. Okay, this is a shot of the theater. Okay, so you get some scale here. So you can see the people down there. What you see here is not even half the theater. That is the theater. So this is the place that, not Paul actually, we're told that Paul's somewhere else when this happens. It's some of his traveling companions that have been drugged here and we're told that Paul's actually kept, not allowed to go. They don't want him to go because things are getting out of hand. And there's another one of his companions, Alexander, who steps up, we read in Acts, to talk and address the crowd. The crowd realizes that he's a, he's a Jew, and they start shouting him down. And we're told in Acts that for two hours, this place, I don't know how full it was, but even if it's half full, I mean, it's, it's, there's a reason they went there, because the crowd is growing. For two hours, they, sat, they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, at them. Like, this is getting out of hand, right? And thankfully, we read that, the, we're told the clerk was able to calm the crowd, get the disciples, the, the traveling companions of Paul out. And very quickly, there's just a little blurb after that scene that says, Paul gathered the disciples and they left. So, so like this, this event happens and the way Acts tells the story, they go, they gather themselves, say goodbye to the, the, the local church and they leave and they're gone. Like this was not a good event, right? This, this could have ended badly. Um, so the question is, who is Artemis, right? The letter to Timothy, where is Timothy? You can probably guess. Ephesus, right? So, so Peter, or Paul is writing to Timothy, who he sent in, to Ephesus. And in the letter, it's tell, he says, Timothy, remain in Ephesus. So he's in this town, building a church in the midst of all of this. So the question is, who is Artemis? And what is actually going on, right? Um, Artemis was the sister of Apollo, son and daughter of Zeus. They were twins. She was the goddess of hunting wild nature. 
uh, and chastity. And that's the reason that her temple was up in the corner. Her temple existed sort of out in her land in the woods because she was the goddess of honey and wild nature. So that was the place that she belonged. When she was born, she was said to have popped out of her mom and turned around and then delivered her son. <laughs> All right, but she was born first, that's important, to her twin brother Apollo. And because she did that, she became also the goddess of fertility and childbearing. There arose, as you can imagine, as, as evidenced in the riot, a cult around Artemis. And we have, uh, have recently in the 90s uncovered a piece of writing, it's called Ephesiaca, written by a guy named Xenophon, and it's dated to 50 AD. So it's right in the middle of what, everything that's going on with Paul and uh, his followers and the building of this church. Um, and it is a love story between two Ephesians, a, boy, a young boy and a woman, um, well, both young, um, and they are verily ardently dedicated to Artemis. And so in that story, we get a clear picture of what it was like to worship and be part of this Artemis culture, um, and we get details of the rituals that went on. All right, the Artemis cult was led by women. Artemis was a woman, and she had priestesses that led all of the worship and everything that was going on. As it's described, this word, plegmasin, is the Greek word for braided hair. It's actually a pretty rare term in the Greek, the literature that we have that existed in that day. It shows up in Ephesiaca as the description of the way the priestesses braid their hair. And it's also the exact same word that Paul uses in our scripture when he talks about don't worship with braided hair. Right? He uses the same term, a rare term, which can reasonably be assumed, therefore, to be a technical term to describe how the priests, priestesses would have adorned themselves. Here is a picture of one of the priests, priestesses, the high priestess of Artemis cult. And you can see there that their hair is braided. They're dressed in pretty fancy clothes. And there are what appear to be pearls braided in their hair. All right. Um, this is one of the women who, who led uh, there were other temples to Artemis around, and this was the priestess from one of the other temples. Um, but it gives you a, sort of a, a good picture and good understanding of what they looked like. Um, those rituals were largely led by wealthy women who wore costly clothing. Okay? You can see they're adorned and dressed very well. They learned and taught in Artemis's temple, and they did so with loud incantations. So as you walk by, you would hear the women chanting the stories of Artemis, and you learn through, it's much like what we do with hymns, right? Hymns, songs, our worship, oftentimes and historically have been used to teach theology. The good ones do, right? The bad ones don't so much. But the good ones have built in there the story, and you learn the story by reciting those songs. It was the same sort of thing here. So they would have had songs and chants, that, and it, would been, it was a loud affair. You were meant to hear it as you went by. And what they taught, in part, was that Artemis was born first, she brought forth Apollo, and therefore men originated from women, and it was through man that sin entered the world. Those were all parts of the, the cult and the theology and the teaching of the Artemis cult. In this church, women had all the authority, and it was flipped from our culture. Men were not allowed often to even participate, and they were basically told to sit down and shut up when they did, okay? And then 
We know also, I mentioned earlier, that Artemis was the protector for young women when it was time for them to bear children. And so they would come, and we have excavated and found, they come, as they're passing to womanhood, they bring their toys, and they put them on the altar to Artemis. When it comes time to give birth, they come and they bring costly clothing and put them on the altar to Artemis. We found those things as we've excavated. What's interesting is, we're gonna go back to our scripture now, every line in this controversial passage addresses a portion of the Artemis cult. Okay? And so if you read this in the context of what was going on in Ephesus at the time, which is clearly a big deal because Acts makes a, uh, it, it's a long story as, as far as the stories in the, the New Testament go, uh, a long tale about what was happening when Paul tried to preach there. It's clearly looming in the background of Timothy's ministry. Right? This is the thing that he's trying to deal with, so it makes sense that Paul's trying to address it. Think for a moment if you... Uh, if we received a letter today about what was going on in our, our world and somebody said, uh, I want you to participate or not to participate in protesting. You know what that means, right? Because we have something going on in our world right now that that directly applies to, right? Someone 2,000 years from now reading that letter is not gonna necessarily know what in the world that's, that has to do with. So a lot of times we have to recognize and deal with the fact that things are written in scripture from one person to another, particularly in the letters, that has a background context that we may not be aware of. And this is one that for a long time, I think, we probably have not been aware of, and we've, the two sides of this debate have tried to explain this scripture in some ways that are, all of them, I just kind of look at them and say, I don't, I don't think that's right. Like that, it, either side, without the historical context, has to make some really weird leaps to make the text say what they wanted to say. But if we have this context, I mean, read this, right? I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. So men get to participate, y'all. Did you know that? <laughs> we, of course, know that, right? Also, that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, with not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Why not? Because to do so is to uphold the Artemis cult, right? Paul cares very much about making sure that this Roman pagan cult doesn't infiltrate the church, okay? But with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. And that's all over Paul, right? That everyone ought to be humble and loving. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. Why would he say that? Yeah, because the women in the Artemis cult are yelling and screaming and canting and, and not allowed, you know, the men to participate. And, and to the extent that they stand up and they're teachers, they're pretty militant about it. They are not submissive at all. And so there's no reason here to, to, to mean which, that which we've taken this historically, that what he's saying is you need to be submissive to man. He doesn't, he doesn't actually say that, does he? No. Come and be submissive, presumably to God, to the true God, right? I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Why not? Sure. Because there's a real danger of again, reestablishing and instituting that which was part of the, the Artemis cult into the church. He wants to make sure that that doesn't happen. All right? So you don't get to come and, and teach the gospel in the way that you got to teach the Artemis cult. For Adam was, and this is the, this is the part that nobody ever makes good sense of. We, all, we go through some really weird hoops to try to make sense of this when now, this, this makes perfect sense, right? Adam was formed first, then Eve. Why does he say that? 
Because Artemis said the other thing, right? She said she was the first of the two twins. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The Artemis cult taught the other. All he's doing here is simply stating the Genesis narrative. It's not necessarily a reason as has been proposed. It's not because you women, you, you believe the snakes, so you don't get to talk, right? And that's the way this text has been used in the past. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. And that one gets all sorts of weird twists and turns, and people try to explain that. Without this context, I don't, it, it's, I mean, what do, you, what do you say to that, right? I, I've heard it, and I think uh, you all have heard it before, that, that there's some, there's a definite article in front of childbearing, and so we tried to make it the childbearing and say that it refers to Jesus, which would make sense, but it makes a lot more sense when you understand the Artemis cult and that Artemis was the goddess who would save the women in childbirth, so Paul's saying, don't worry about Artemis. You don't have to go give your toys to her as from your childhood or offer sacrifices. She's not the one that's gonna save you. It's gonna be Jesus. You don't have to worry about that. Jesus is the son of the living God, the king of the world, and you're, you'll be fine, right? You're not going to die in childbirth because you didn't go offer to Artemis. Does it make sense? History matters. It matters that the Ephesians were crazy about Artemis, right? It's the backdrop that the letter was written. It was the backdrop of the ministry and the story in Acts. And it certainly looms large in what Timothy was trying to do. That, that's, the, that's the local narrative and story that he's trying to supplant and, and replace with the gospel. And so the point that Paul is making with this is actually the same point he makes everywhere else is everybody gets to play. We're all the same, right? Women don't get to be militant, authoritative leaders, neither do men. In the kingdom of God, there's no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no man, no woman. He's saying the same thing. And so it sits nicely now. I mean, with that context, if, if that's all right, and I think it is, you can still disagree with me, right? You're allowed to do that. Then it all, it all works together. Paul's saying the same thing everywhere. I want to show you some, a little bit more. I know we're, we're a little longer today, um, so bear with me. But history's great. But the other thing that we have to think about is what, what, is, what has the church actually been saying for thousands of years? Right? It matters what the witness of the people of God have been saying. Right? We can't just overturn thousands of years of God's people following him just because we have a nice little historical context that seems to make sense of something, right? And so we care about what has been going on. We've, we've looked already at a couple scriptures which I think lend themselves to say, yeah, women actually were in some leadership roles even in our own biblical text. But let's look at uh, actual history. We have, in the last 100 years, found these again. The question is, where did they go? I don't know. But these are gonna be some historical artifacts, art, um, that have come to light in three of the biggest churches. Um, the Hagia Sophia, which is in Constantinople. When Constantine came to power and he made the Christian faith the official religion of Rome, one of the other things he did was move the capital from Rome to Constantinople, and he built the Hagia Sophia, which is the f the f one of the first actual church buildings built for the church, and it is huge and grand and beautiful. Um, and in there was found this. 
Do you know what you're looking at? Okay, you're looking at a depiction of on the, man, on the left, a man, on the center, an altar, and on the left, a woman. And if you see, they both have their hands raised. Do you know what that means? It is always been, and to this day, it is a symbol of a, the Eucharistic act, right? As the, the, the text and the liturgy that, that is associated with communion has been largely unchanged when we're using scripture, so why would we change it? Um, but you, and you'll notice, when I talk to you, I usually talk to you. When we go to do the communion, I, I'm usually reading. It's because there's a historical basis for those words. And as I'm reading, I'm reading to you what's read, but there are also notes about what I'm supposed to be doing. And when it gets to the point, there's a point where we uh, pray about the Holy Spirit being present in the elements and in our lives that we might live rightly and it might, you know, grace might come to us. I'm obviously paraphrasing at this point. But it tells me, raise your hands, okay? Raising hands, particularly in early church art, was a depiction of the priestly act of the Eucharist and communion. Okay, and what we're gonna see is that time and time again, we see both men and women in the midst of that. So this comes from, it tells you probably about 4.30 in the Hagia Sophia. Uh, this comes from a church in Rome. Um, this is a depiction of Mary. So she has her hands up in the same way, but she's also wearing something. It's the Episcopal pallium. It's this little white thing that comes down, has a red cross. And in church tradition, that is the symbol of a bishop. And a bishop is the head of the church. So each area's church had a bishop that all of the church's deacons and elders would report to, okay? So the bishop was the, the person, right? I would say the guy, but in here we see uh, clearly that this is Mary was depicted as, as a bishop to have that Episcopal authority. Interestingly, in 1916, I believe, uh, it was the early 1900s, there, yeah, 1916, there was a decree put out um, in the Roman Catholic Church to wipe this off of Mary in every depiction. And so if you go now, you'll find that every depiction of Mary no longer has this. Um, this one survived. It, if you go into that church today, there's a large statue that sits in its way, so you can't actually see it. Um, but this one happened to survive. This is the reliquary box in the church's history. It was thought that uh, if the, the remains of the apostles were somehow spiritually powerful, and so there are relics, they become relics. And this is the boxes, the box that St. Peter's bones were supposedly put in. Um, and on, on the front of it, you see the same thing again. You see on the left, two men with their hands raised, or I'm sorry, on the, yeah, on the right, there are two women with their hands raised. In the middle, what you see is a man and woman raising the cup, which is a clear Eucharistic act. And so here we see men and women together instituting the Eucharist. And I should say that up until the Protestant Reformation, the Eucharist communion was the high point of the service. The Protestants, there, a lot, there had been a lot that become sort of mysterious and weird about the Eucharist. And so during the Protestant Reformation, um, the, the teaching became sort of the important part, the high point of the service. But before that, it all led and centered around the Eucharist. So for women to be participating in the most important thing is important. This is another ivory box. Again, we have three different women around here. Um, I believe they think these are actually the women who came from the tomb. So Mary and Mary and I, I think Martha. Don't quote me on that. Um, this one's found in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the Jerusalem church, right? 
And then this one is from the late 200s. So this one's very early. This is actually from before the church becomes the official church of Rome. And there on the bottom right, you see a woman raising the cup. Okay. Um, this is the first page of a story called The Passion of St. Perpetua. In the early church, it's two of three uh, under em Emperor Septimius Severus. Um, the, the persecution of the church came in waves. We, a lot of people think, oh, the church for 300 years was fed to lions. That's not actually true. There were different ways in which the church was persecuted. Sometimes it wasn't, sometimes it was. Under this guy, he decided that he wants to punish any conversion. So anyone who is out actively evangelizing and trying to make converts is gonna get punished. Anyone who converts gets punished. If you're already a Christian, you're cool, you're fine. You get to, you get to live, right? But this woman, Perpetua, and Felicity is another one of the women. There are five of them who were found to be doing just that. Perpetua is the deacon, deaconess, who was training the catechumens, right? So she's the one teaching them. And the other four were the ones that were going through the rites in the process of becoming part of the church. And the authorities found out and they were fed to the animals. I think in this case, it was maybe cheetahs and leopards but it was, it was brutal as you can imagine. But the point is, why is she fed to the animals? Because she's doing the very thing that we have been told, Paul told Timothy not to do. And so very clearly on, in many ways we see that women were an active part of the church. So we have historical context, we have historical evidence from within the church, we have scriptural basis for allowing women to have positions of authority. There are other places where Paul writes about women being deacons and deaconesses. Uh, we didn't even talk about that today. So, I mean, I, I know we've talked for a long time, but there's, a, I think, a lot of information and important information to get out there. And the, the point today is twofold. One is we have to care about history, right? We have to care about objective, as objective reality as we can, right? Our, our faith is rooted in a historical happening. And the early church came about in a particular historical context. And we have to try as best we can to understand what that context was, what was swirling in the culture, what was going on, what is Paul writing about, what are these other writers writing about, what is going on, and, and how are they trying to institute the gospel, in this case, into a culture that where Artemis is the big deal. And that has certain implications. And so Paul writes these letters to make sure that that cult doesn't get translated into the church. And so when we take history seriously, we can see that what Paul is saying is, I said earlier, we all get to play, right? And, and early on, I said, for those of you who, have, who are women, most of you are, if you've been told in the history of the church, you don't get to speak, you don't get to teach because Paul said so, I'm here to tell you that's not what Paul said. If we take that seriously, what Paul said is actually the exact opposite. What Paul said, if we translate what he said into our culture, he looks at me and says, sit down, let the women talk. Now, the context is certainly a little different. Hopefully, I'm preaching good, solid, biblical things. Obviously, in this case, the women were not. And so that's the fundamental point, right? But the other point that Paul makes throughout his writing is everybody gets to be a part of this. That gender, one gender is not more important or preferred. One gender is not oppressed and to sit quietly. It's not, it's not what Paul said. That's not what he was trying to, to write. And I think we have substantial evidence to make that point. But like I said, all that to say, we have an amazing historic faith and we ought to accept that with enthusiasm, right? 
we can look at history, we can look at all these amazing archeological finds and writings that we're uncovering and learn more about our faith. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful gift. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna end there. Thank you for hanging with me today. Uh, if you have any questions, please ask. Uh, like I said, um, you're free to disagree and I would love to have conversations with you about that, but I'm gonna stop there. So let's say a word of prayer and then let's spend some time in worship. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the truth of Jesus. Uh, and part of that truth, a major part of that truth is that he was a real man who walked this earth, who had real things to say, uh, who called real people, both men and women, to be part of your family, uh, to be empowered by your spirit, and to be part of the building of your kingdom in our world. And so we praise you, God, for who you are, and we thank you for the invitation for all of us uh, to come and be part of your family, uh, that you have included all of us uh, on equal footing. And we just thank you, and we come now to sing your praise and worship once again. And we ask that you be with us in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen.